Welcome to our milestone 40th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging this very special country from which we are live streaming and the traditional owners of this budja on which we gather, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge their ongoing connection to both this land and the seas and waters that surround us. American photographer Bill Cunningham once said, fashion is the armour to survive the reality of everyday life. And there is definitely some truth in that. However, I think in many ways it is the fashion industry that requires so much more than armour. It seems to require a whole army of support to keep marching through. Fashion is something we all love. We know um, how much it means to our world and to so many people in it. But it is an amazing, I often used to say when I was with the Fashion Council, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors behind the scenes and there's a lot of really hard work that makes it happen. Um, in the last few years, we've seen a number of independent fashion retailers close their doors and our annual Perth Fashion Festival that drew a national and international light on our young designers is no more. Today, we are talking to two stalwarts of the industry. We've unfortunately had a late minute cancellation of Megan Salmon, who is suffering from vertigo this morning. Um, but we're going to be talking through what it takes to continue to make a place like Fremantle, um, keep its place in the independent and fashion retail map, particularly when compared to online and also the larger, I guess, shopping centre precincts as well. And also what it truly takes to make a mark in this industry. I'm going to start with the amazing Lisa Pillar first up. Lisa Westover Pillar is a lecturer in fashion design and fashion business at South Metropolitan TAFE, following a 16-year career working in fashion product design and development, sustainable supply chain management. Starting in the 90s, fresh out of fashion school with an environmentally friendly women's wear store on High Street in Fremantle, Lisa's passion for designing for change has seen her recently publish on the topic in the International Journal of Fashion Marketing and Management. Immersed in research on new technologies and sustainable and circular practices, Lisa is focused on preparing students for lasting careers as ethical, sustainable and innovative designers. And we're going to see a little bit of an insight into uh, those three focuses, in particular Lisa, in the next week or so as we launch Fremantle's Fashion Showcase. Station 22 is the theme. Um, can you initially talk us through what we can expect over the next couple of weeks? Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Denisha, and hi, Jared. Um, yeah, we've got a pretty exciting 10 days ahead of us planned. Um, so we're so grateful to have a partnership with uh, the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce and City of Fremantle. Uh, and together we've been collaborating to put on some pretty fabulous events for our fashion uh, students at South Metro TAFE. Uh, so probably the highlight is next Thursday we're putting on two fashion shows called Station 22 at the Fremantle Town Hall. Um, so we the 7.30 show is sold out, the, there's still tickets available for the 5 o'clock show and uh, 13 of our students are showcasing their collections that they've spent the year developing. Um, so Station 22 is a bit of a celebration um, of old and new, sort of retro uh, with, with kind of futuristic uh, emerging practices and uh, we're very excited to be bringing that show uh, together at the Fremantle Town Hall. It's such a beautiful space. Yes. We've got an enormous LED screen that we're putting up on the stage 
and we're projecting some of the students' digital technological 3D work on avatars at the same time as presenting the, the, the real deal, the physical garments on, uh, on live models. Um, so, and we have an, an exhibit that sort of supports that at the Walyalup Centre, um, Civic Centre at the entrance to the library there, uh, which will be on for the week afterwards. Um, and then also we've got some fantastic collaborations between uh, my visual merchandising students at the college and uh, the Chamber of Commerce and local retailers as part of the Shine a Light window. Uh, Christmas window installations. So there's lots of really fabulous things happening at the moment that we're preparing for and very excited about. That's fantastic. And I think so much of what we're aiming to showcase is that whole supply chain, you know, isn't it? From design to maintaining that independence to getting the message out to then being able to retail and showcase it. And Jared will come to you shortly just to talk about some of those elements um, in a very mm. niche market in a minute. You've seen a lot of young designers come through your training. What do you think are some of the things that shape success in this really challenging industry? Mm, I think you, you touched on a couple of them just there, Denisha. I think what I feel is that there are sort of two key aspects. Um, one is the storytelling and authenticity aspect um, of fashion design mm. um, and, you know, not necessarily... Um, moving with trends but creating a core sense of um, brand identity and um, an authenticity about the story that you want to tell, the, the unique position that you want to share with your market. Um, so that's kind of one facet um, and I'm you know, just thought I would share with you one of my uh, design students that's showcasing next week and the way in which she's done this. So uh, for a lot of our graduates, we do have um, mature age students too, but a lot of our students come straight from school. And so they're often like trying to think of what they have to offer in terms of life experience to share as a narrative when they're building the concept behind their collection. And so um, Chelsea uh, is, she, she's sort of, into uh, Lolita fashion, she's quite colourful and you know like big big silhouettes. Um, but she and so she's got quite a distinct niche target market mm. to begin with, and so commercially that's a good thing to really understand who your target market mm, is and have it. But in terms of her storytelling, she um, she loved uh, having pen pals as a kid, and her whole uh, concept for her range that she's showcasing is about the move away from communicating uh, through snail mail and through longer processes and, you know, this more flippant, quick, you know, text messaging yeah. style of communi communication that we have now. Um, and so she, her collection is called Please Excuse My Handwriting <laughs> and she's developed her uh, digital prints um, using stamps from the postcards and the, the letters that she received from her pen pals over the years. Mm -hmm. She's brought her own sort of unique flavour to them. They're very colourful. She got, she took lines from um, her letters from her pen pals and got every student in our cohort that is showcasing to write one sentence in a different coloured pen and then built a big sort of tapestry of a digital print which she's put on her um, full skirts which are, you know, like colourful handwriting all over them. And she's created um, like yokes on blouses that look like the opening of an envelope, the back of an envelope. 
Um, so, you know, what I sort of feel so proud of when I see a collection like Please Excuse My Handwriting is how connected it is to her. There's a story to tell. It's, you know, it's unique. Um, she's a young emerging designer, but she's captured that really beautifully. So that's, that's the kind of storytelling site. I know it's a gorgeous story. But then I would say, and to your point earlier, that it is um, that, you know, that creative side and that authenticity side has to be accompanied by a really good understanding and skills around um, the supply chain from procurement and sourcing to costing to developing a really good technical pack to communicate information to maybe somebody that is mm -hmm. offshore, has a second language, um, to understanding, um, you know, the industry networks and being brave about building relationships in the industry. So uh, understanding quality. And so I think, you know, um, all of those skills build a sort of a, a versatility and, um, and an agility that is really important in our market. And we see what's happened in the last two years um, and, you know, the, the pivoting and agility that has been required throughout that. And so I think having that really strong skill set enables um, designers to navigate that. And the other thing that I would just finish on, on a, that point is... Um, we have a number of our graduates that work for a medical um, business called Second Skin and they construct and pattern make um, and design uh, compression bandages for burns victims. And so, you know, you sort of... Uh, I think some of the skills that we're teaching the students, I guess, are, are very transferable. Um, so, yes, the, you know, the... The sexy reason why students come and want to study fashion is, is important. Tell it, story, the storytelling aspect is important, but so is all of the underpinning um, kind of logistical, um, strategic and production understanding, I Absolutely. think. And I think that's what, when I, when I look at graduates that have been very succe successful, I see those um, sort of a marriage of those um, different skill sets. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we think about some of our, you know, leading larger designers as well, you know, they either have that or they usually have a partner who has that. So yes. you yeah. tend to have to have really strongly have that really strong sense of creativity and story, mm. but also the business mm. sense of mm. logistics and mm. tough, really mm. tough industry. I'm fascinated by your link to story and Jared, our next mm. panellist of Jack Stillman, um, an amazing narrative and story mm. that you've built into also a really clear um, way to manage supply and demand and change, I guess, over the last few years. Um, for those of you who don't know um, Jared Stillman, he started the brand Jack Stillman Brand in 2014, which was named after his grandfather Jack and is now the proud namesake of his son also. Jack Stillman is a brand built on strong family roots and connections, a love of riding and the open road. Jack Stillman now has a strong international following following its original bags, luggage and accessories that stand out for their attention to detail, classic styling and truly outstanding quality. Every time I look at one, I'm like, how can I afford it and where would I use it? <laughs> I think, Jared, truly stunning, stunning products. Um, in recent times, the brand has commenced collaborations with some notable international brands and celebrity and has grown distribution to some of the world's top motorcycle destinations, such as Bike Shed MC in London and the Royal Cafe Races in France. Jared, an incredibly niche product in a target market that you know intimately well. Can you talk us through the story of Jack Stillman and that integration of your design, supply chain and retail offering? Yes. Yes, good. <laughs> Excellent. That's why we're here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so 
it, it was it was interesting uh, listening to Lisa there. Uh, because uh, um, I'm not a tra- I'm not a, a formally qualified uh, fashion designer mm-hmm. or anything like that. Uh, I, I've uh, I'm a, I'm a creative. Always have been a creative, but. Um, this was just an outlet for me to uh, and bags. I've always liked bags. I guess I've, I'm a I'm a former uh, soldier, and and so I've always liked the aesthetic of you know, well, like good bags. But I I love the aesthetic of the old school, um, sort of Vietnam World War Two mm. era bags, which mm. believe it or not, I inherited when I was <laughs> seventeen and joined the army. They still had that old, really old sort of ca- heavy canvas stuff and uh, and I just love the the um, the use of uh, the hardware I mean it was just metal buckles and things you know no mm. velcro in those days it was metal buckles and tabs and stuff so I've always I've always liked that um, I don't know that that real old school aesthetic so when I started the business in uh, in, in two, 2014 I, I was sort of I was starting to do jewelry mainly and then I went to bags and then uh, and I designed some uh, horrendous bags <laughs> that w- and started production in Bali and uh, and that just became quite difficult being here and 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 uh, and not being close to supply chain and things and um, I went through the whole cycle of uh, white labeling and a uh, white labeling for people that don't know is is uh, is sourcing pre-made products from overseas and relabeling them and and that just felt really really dirty I just <laughs> it's just it was a good exercise to go through and it, and it expanded my knowledge of the the luggage and bags industry for sure but it just yeah oh, it's just I mean I made okay money but it was yeah it just just didn't feel right mm-hmm. for me. So, um, in 2018, um, uh, I decided that I really, really wanted to um, to sort of double down on the business, and and so I made a decision to to make the bags that I wanted to make, and and to do that, I decided I need to move to. I need to move to where I'm, they're making the bags, yes. and and I know I couldn't do it in Australia, and and we can talk about that afterwards, and because that's an important uh, issue to tackle, is why someone like me can't make mm-hmm. things. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I can sew a little bit and design things, but I can't, you know, it's not the capacity, and it's not the business that I was designing. Anyway, so I decided that it was either going to be, I was either going to move to Bali or I was going to move to another market and Vietnam came up and so um, I thought, right, well, we'll move to Vietnam. So now I'm a sole, <laughs> I've got uh, I've got three kids, two from a former mar- marriage in Madeline whose uh, his mother passed away in 2013, which sort of led me to start the business. And so... Uh, Maddie, I packed Maddie up and we moved to Vietnam. So we actually moved to Da Nang in Vietnam in 2018. Dragged me uh, then uh, nine-year-old daughter all the way over there, and and I thought, well, I'll find a place that I can make the stuff that I want. want. And then, um, but that didn't work out. Um, uh, when I got to Vietnam, I quickly realised that the kind of stuff that I wanted to do, I I couldn't find a place to do that. So well, I actually had to start 
my own operation, my own factory. So, so that's what we get. And you need to tell me if I'm rambling because I will ramble it's on. It's truly about we're this engrossed stuff. and so, we're fascinated because you've touched on already so many things. One, it's great to have a great idea, yeah. but the actual idea needs to evolve on the circumstances in which well, you find yourself. And then also, sometimes you need to create your own ability to generate and stay true to that story, which is what you're obviously talking through now that you created yeah. in Vietnam. Well, it's interesting, as I said, we're touching on what Lisa was saying. It, it's great to have to want to want to express yourself creativity uh, creatively and it's and it's great to want to have uh, to do these things that you want to do um but you can't always wait in fact in fact you really can wait for somebody else to come along and mm. hire you to do it yeah if you really really want to do it you've got to just grind away and and find a way to do it um, to do it yourself mm. uh, and if, if you really really want to do it that's that's just what you've got to do mm. you've got to have mm. that you, you've you've got to be creative first I think I think you really do because you've got to be true to what it is that that you want to create that what you want to do and how you want to you know I express your ideas but you've got to be a business person second mm. if you want to sustain it mm. otherwise it's just not sustainable mm. so mm. anyway um, Get back to Vietnam. That's that's what we had to do. We had to source everything um, because my materials are quite specific, and they didn't have um, uh, a lot of the materials that we wanted over there, like solid brass hardware, and mm. even the wax canvas. They just looked at it, and scratched their head, and said, oh, "I don't know what that is. If it's not if it's not uh, quadrua or nylon, we don't know what it is." Kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so we yeah. had to source all of that, and and even the 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 leather vegetable tan leather and things so yeah it was quite a uh, quite a process we got that going and then uh come back to australia and, and we've uh, we opened our first store post <laughs> the beginning of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so like we're in this we're in Fremantle and we've never we've got these other shop owners going oh man i can't wait for these boats to come back and the tourists and I'm like man we've never had that <laughs> and now they're turning up and we're going oh right we might actually start making some money in this shop <laughs> but a critical thing to, to touch on as well is that that my business has always been mostly online this is my mm. first shop uh, and so you know uh, you can create a successful business online and I think it's important that you do and that you mm -hmm. have that consideration from the beginning as well. It's a complicated ecosystem but definitely um, online is, is, is where we've made our mark and where we continue to make our money. Mm -hmm. It's probably easier with bags maybe than other types of fashion. And also knowing your market. You know, you're talking to specific customers that potentially you can find online as opposed yes. to a very generic offering that must be quite difficult. Lisa to mentioned that as well. And it's mm. it was so great to hear that actually coming from a, uh, a, a learning institution, an education institution, because sometimes I, 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 uh, I, I guess I'm not, because I'm, I'm not connected to that world, I wonder what these people are being taught. But it's just so great to hear that that, that the niche in any business is uh, is a great thing. But especially, mm. I think, in creative industries like fashion, the more niche you are, the easier it's going to be to focus your um, um, your your marketing and your efforts. To, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. It's, it's an analogy I use a lot. I mean, you could say say um, uh, you know the the um, 
the fashion, so say the luggage industry, for mm. example, it, it, in worldwide, is you know this big. And to those that can't see, I'm holding my hands out so far. Uh, yeah. You know, you only need you only need this little. That you only need piece, this little centimetre yeah, here yeah, or yeah. even less than that to yeah. make a great living. And so you've just got to find those right segments within those larger mm. industries and you can really do quite well. It's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking about when I was with the Fashion Council and a really great conversation with Poppy Lissaman, even on that, of saying, you know, when she first started with sunglasses and really out there sunglasses, people were like, what are you doing, crazy lady? But she said they were so visual and she could get them onto celebrities' faces really, really easily. Oh, yeah. And then that just helped her grow the rest of her market around that as well. Well, it's, and I agree with that and that's interesting and it's a focus that we sort of fell into, the celebrity market. Mm. But um, it, it is actually becoming a key part of our business, believe it or not. Yeah. We've got, uh, yeah, as I said, it's been, oh, I better be careful with my language, um, <laughs> accidental. Uh, um, but but we've, yeah, we've got quite a few celebrity connections now with our brand and mm. I think if you can, I mean, we're actually looking at that as, as, as a serious part of our marketing mm. is mm. how do we get more involved in, in uh, say the local film industry or the international film industry with celebrities and things like that. Absolutely so, yeah. and that's about creating ambassadors for your story isn't it and people that fit that. Lisa, one of the things I was going to um, just ask you, because I know it's such a passion of yours, and Jared touched on it, I mean, pick, pack the family up and move to Vietnam yeah. <laughs> in order to develop and, and mm. manage that supply chain. I know in the example I gave before, you know, Poppy's gone to factories directly, mm. been intimately involved overseas because of some of the production challenges mm. here. Mm. COVID kind of changed, I guess, the ability to manage some of those supply mm. chains efficiently. And I know you've done so much work at the college around technology mm. and some of those changes. Keeping your eye on those changes must be difficult, but what are some of the positive impacts that some of that challenge has brought? Yeah, I, th I think the last couple of years has been interesting um, in terms of those supply chain disruptions. And, um, and I think it's sort of, it's had a couple of impacts. One around just, you know, it was a total disruptor of supply chains and, you know, for um, a lot of brands, you know, they, they were, their collections were an entire season behind and then by the time their, you know, their collections arrived from the, you know, offshore production house, um, they were not only out of season but um, out of relevance to a market that was no longer going out. You yes, know, like everyone yeah. was, you remember the rise <laughs> of... Where's my spark? Yeah, that, you, that's right, the, 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 the Zoom, <laughs> Zoom wear. For, you know, the, likewise for you, Jared. You know, where's my bag to go camping when I can't actually get out yeah, anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, so, so there was sort of that and then there was the... Um, so that, that kind of return to... Or the, the desire to return to local but then realising that local production's been depleted since the 80s because everyone has moved offshore and there's just now no longer the skills or the facilities to, to make here, even if you wanted to um, and could afford to. Um, and, um, and then quite a sort of a public scrutiny of brands. There's so much going on around um, big uh, luxury houses and high street um, stores that were just cancelling on uh, clothing manufacturers in developing nations. 
um, it, you know, they were trying to deal with an excess of inventory that wasn't yeah. selling, but, you know, the, the pass-on effect of that was affecting the people that could least afford it. Um, and then a bit of a consumer backlash to that and then the rise of, you know, the cancel culture trend anyway. So all of a sudden there's a lot more kind of public awareness and scrutiny and accountability for brands. So there's sort of that going on. And then in the logistical sense, you know, brands, um, you know, like trying to fit a fit model during lockdown, um, trying to attend a trade show, trying to head to a mill to source fabric, um, putting on a runway event, putting on any kind of PR event. So all of that stopped. And so I think that while we know that, you know, a lot of, um, you know, Jared's talked about how critical online is to his business model and how much it sort of opens up his audience beyond you know, Fremantle to a yeah. whole world of, you know, um, niche, passion, uh, passionate um, customers. Um, I think, you know, trends that were sort of already emerging in that space um, around, um, you know, virtual mm. kind of um, augmented reality, virtual reality, suddenly saw an application in a space where you couldn't attend a fitting or you couldn't put on a runway show. So, you know, we saw the gimmicky stuff like, you know, digital um, runway shows, you know, the metaverse, which yeah. the jury's still out on whether that's working the metaverse fashion <laughs> week um, this year that, you know, and some yeah, of the big brands... Tell me yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of like, you know, a jury's still out on whether mm. that will um, go on to thrive or not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but in terms of a practical sense, you know, to be able to use a virtual technology to um, create a pattern, sew the pattern, fit it on a virtual avatar whose measurements are the same as your fit model or your size of your, um, your brand, um, send that avatar for a little walk, look at stress points on the avatar of where the armhole's too tight, make those adjustments virtually, email that file off to manufacturers, you know, offshore or interstate, um, and that whole communi communication channel sort of started to accelerate. And so, th so doing a, you know, having a virtual showing or, you know, virtual fitting um, is now really doable. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've, you know, been doing with our students this year and we're showcasing um, next week at the, the fashion show. Um, but for me, as you mentioned, you know, my passion for sustainable supply chains, transparent supply chains and ethics and conscious design, you know, there's a whole host of benefits for that. Um, you know, the reality of creating that, um, I'm not, I'd be interested to hear when you prototype your bags, Jared, but, you know, from my experience, you know, to get one, say, a women's shirt, um, if you're manufacturing offshore, that initial prototype has gone backwards and forwards um, to China or wherever multiple times before you sign off on that and go into production. So you think of like the resource use, the carbon footprint of all of that happening. Well, all of that can happen virtually until you get, you know, you're, you're, you're the one that you're happy with and then you go into production with it. So the sustainability benefits of some of those practices as well as speed to market, which is a massive thing at the moment and where um, we, we, we're looking at you know, moving away from this really inventory, this system of stockpiling inventory and hoping that it sells and then what do we do with all of this um, pre-consumer waste, let alone the post-consumer waste. 
That's um, throwback to selling hypercolored t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. In and, the, um, yeah no, on, on that, we couldn't give them away. Yeah, yeah. we, we um, at college collaborate with Thread Together, whose sole job is to redistribute um, pre-consumer waste. So we get size XXXXL men's shirts from brands with swing tags on mm. that the students can have never been worn that the students can, you know, upcycle. But, you know, that inventory system is creating an awful lot of, of waste. So... Um, but then the issues around made-to-order and demand-led systems are speed-to-market when we've, you know, got a client base that kind of wants things right now. Yeah. So, the, the you know, systems around that can accelerate that speed-to-market, mm. like, you know, virtual prototyping, you know, there are real benefits there mm. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you're talking, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned some of the backlash at a time that was also caused by in some ways, consumer behaviour to start off with. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, you've talked a lot about sustainable fashion. I know that's, you know, a really strong passion of yours, Lisa. And, Jared, your your product is so beautifully artisan produced. Yeah. But that does come at a cost, isn't it? And I'm curious to see your hear your views on the role that we have as consumers and our responsibility to go down a path of fast fashion, particularly in tight economic times as we're seeing at the moment, and a responsibility to appreciate quality and, and where's the line in that and how much do we as consumers have to do to ensure that brands like yours can stay alive? Yeah. Well, I, I sort of take the view that it's not up to the consumer. I, I take a view that it is that the consumer consumes and the consumer will consume what's on offer. Yeah. And and I think it's more up to brands like us to to educate. And, and it's something we constantly do. I mean, we spend hundreds of dollars a day um, on on marketing, and and so we we get a lot of feedback online with our uh, with our marketing on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. And the majority of it is good, but every now and then you just get that one. Um, uh, Idiot. Um, <laughs> once again, I don't watch my language. I, I could make this so much more fun if you yeah, take yeah. if you take the handcuffs we off. We have but, a rating. No. Yeah? All right. Um, yeah, I don't want to offend anyone in the room. Uh, yeah, but so you know, you, you get those individuals that you, that uh, you know, take your stinking product out of the Australian made, blah, blah. but you know, people don't realise. I mean the. Um, 95% of what's on offer retail in this country is is made overseas. So 5%, 5%. That's in fashion anyway. And so then you you, you look at um, consumer electronics, white goods, things like that. That's probably close to about 99%, maybe even more. And so people don't realise. But I can't change that on my own. And so we just have to stick with what, what we do and we have to educate. And that's, that's, that's part of the game. You know, you want to be part of the game. You want to make money. You, know, you can't have a cry in the corner that uh, people are being mean to you and they don't understand how hard you're working. You've, you've got to you've, – that's part of the, the, uh, the um, kit of skills that you have to have. You've got to, you've got to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and – Consumers will eventually. You're always going to have that one or two percent. I think most people are starting to understand it, um, but uh, yeah. So our products. I mean, our, our my my uh, operation over there. It's 
we've got 14 people. That's it. It's you know, and I, I, so I, I, I say like to say I, I feed 20 families. Yeah. You know, I got staff here and I got staff there, so I'm responsible for that. So I have to be a responsible business person to make sure those guys are looked after, and they are. They're they're paid really well because they're really really good at what they're doing mm. and lisa touched on this before as well and it's a, and it's a bit of a so this is a bit of a a uh, passion subject for me as well is that uh, and i mean to cause no offense but you could we, we could have higher priced items that are made in australia for sure but we don't have people with the skills to make them mm. and it, and you know most of the companies uh, that are probably that are making here a great majority of them, and 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 once again, I, I mean it's 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 people that have come from Asia anyway that have those skills, mm -hmm. and the reason they have those skills is because that's where those markets are, and they're really really good. Like my guys, some of my guys are just ah, they're, they're incredible craftsmen. Yeah. They are really really good at what they do, and uh, and they've got access to the materials. That we need and that we want. Mm. I mean, you could, the whole supply chain of even getting raw materials here, that people don't take that into consideration either. You know, that that comes at a cost mm. to get the raw materials. Machines. You try getting a, an industrial sewing machine that can sew. It's just it, it costs. It, it, they're expensive and they're just not here. They're not here. You know, if you want them, you've got to pay a premium to import it's them. It's really interesting, it's even as you're talking, yeah. Jared. On Thursday, we ran a supply chain um, conversation just with some of the international trade people. And one of the things Dominic said so cleverly from Fremantle Ports is that we are so small on mm. an international trade perspective. When you actually see the trade routes going around the world, we're down here. No one necessarily comes here unless they really have a exactly. reason to. And his point was really interesting where he said rather than seeing local coming here, we're probably going to see more of a certain countries do certain things really, really mm. well. And we're, like your example, we'll be going to those countries to actually say this is where it is. We will base our business here rather than the other way around. We are a blue ball floating yeah. in space, man. <laughs> and the sooner we stop thinking that, you know, like, oh, we're here and we're us and this yeah. is our identity and that's their identity, it, it makes it, it makes certain sense. And it's not about exporting cheap workers either. No. I don't believe that. Um, because uh, uh, it, it, it's a different system, it's a different standard of living, there's different expectations and things like that. And we, of course, we need to pull people out of poverty, and and I'm, you know, that 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 just needs to happen. Um, but it, it's these guys have got access to supply lines. They're, they're very good at what they do. Um, their economy is is actually geared towards that. Mm. Ours isn't. Um, and, and the other issue I have with it as well is what's wrong with an Australian company, an Australian designer? Because, I mean, this is, it's like, it's a, it's like a, people think we're trying to trick them online. We say Australian-owned business, Australian-designed. And I, oh, that's not good enough for some people. <laughs> you know, how, it's like uh, they've cracked the code. They write, oh, but where's it made? You know, and you think, oh, you know, yeah. it's all on our website. It's all there. In fact, we're more open about it than most most of our competitors, we are right there on every page. Yeah. We, we say it, most of our competitors don't. 
So, yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with, with being competitive in that market. I mean, otherwise you're looking at bags and things where well, you're probably going to get a, like a, a Chinese-owned company or an American-owned company selling bags in Australia, having their bags made overseas. It's, it's you know, yeah, they're only arguing with you because you're here. Yeah, yeah. And so. I think it's interesting to understanding where your market is. I know during COVID, a number of our um, sort of fashion designers were able to find, you know, amazing non-Italian seamstresses that could make their product mm. really easily. They've got the skills. They were able to bulk up with their lack of industrial sewing machines, but I'm sure they had a whole team of them, you know, pushing them out. But, you know, there's certain products that won't allow that to happen. So, again, understanding as you started so cleverly, Lisa, with that whole you're not just at the glamour end of fashion. Yeah, yeah. You really are starting at a point where you have to think about what your story is but also right back to how are we actually going to make this, where are the materials going to come from, how do we do all of that efficiently. That's a lot to take in for young designers that maybe get in the business because they like pretty clothes. Yes. <laughs> you, yes. Do you have much to comment oh, on that? Um, look, I th yeah, I think... There is just certainly in the first year of training, there's a bit of um, a reality check for, mm. for some of the students. Um, we have a fashion business stream, so, um, and the fashion business students are the ones working with the Shine a Light project, the yes. visual merchandising students. So they don't learn to pattern make, to sew, um, to design necessarily. Um, we do. Do, so they learn things more like fashion buying, fashion law, marketing, social media management, um, digital, digital ID, visual merchandising, styling. Um, we do a product development unit um, and, and so that is less about the sort of storytelling um, design with the degree of um, authenticity around what um, the, the style of Jared's business but more, um, you know, I guess merchandise. Mm. So, you know, it's quite common that you might uh, work in fashion business for someone that's really doing more branded merchandise and, and we sort of look at ways to do that sustainably. Um, Pre-COVID, um, I worked with the students on doing that um, offshore. So uh, we had some partners in Indonesia and we, um, we kind of went backwards and forwards with them to just sort of take the students through that whole product development supply chain um, how to do it transparently, how to do it ethically. And I would completely agree with Jared in that um, while there's the full spectrum in some deregulated countries of, um, of, you know, what is an okay work environment and what isn't, what is, you know, well paid and what isn't, it's not necessarily saying that because it's made locally that those conditions are necessarily, you know, better than... Um, a factory that you vetted, maybe even set up um, offshore and um, develop the systems and the pay structures and the work environments for, for, that for that workplace. And while the non is working from home is a great example, it's also an environment that can be ripe for um, exploitation. Yeah, exploitation. And there, there is some outworker legislation mm. that was um, brought in about, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, which tries to uh, navigate that um, in, in Australia. But uh, you're right, you know, there's, there's not very many students that go, I want to be a machinist. Mm. Um, it's not well paid. It is a highly skilled thing. So, you know, our students do three years of training. I think our students are 
exceptional machinists, far better than I, um, but they're not fast. Mm. Um, and so, you know, quite often um, in industry, it's a piece price pay structure, so cut, make, trim price. Um, so it's not, you're not paid by how long no. something takes you to sew. So, you know, there's a lot, it's not black and white. No. You know, the whole fashion, it's such a convoluted and complex industry. It's, you know, it seems like, you know, like a, a, a garment is a straightforward thing, but it's one of the most convoluted and complex supply chains of all products. <laughs> yeah, far, more so, far more so than, you know, your, your computer your or your electronics, <laughs> which <laughs> looks really complicated. Yeah, but so when you true. think of like the, you know, from like the growing of that cotton and, the, you know, and, and where it's grown and um, what fertilisers and water put on it and, you know, what, mm. you, know, it, you know, right through to, you know, then what happens once the consumer doesn't want it anymore, they've laundered it and laundered it and what do they do then? So um, none of these things are black and white, which makes it really complicated. You know, you were talking, Jared, about communicating to your customer. That, that this is the big challenge for brands like mm. Jared's because... You know, like you can't summarise a complex story like that in a like a one-liner response. Yeah, yeah. And so when um, you know when Jared says that he doesn't think it should be the responsibility of the consumers, I do agree with that because um, you know I think you know if for example it was legislation around um, fibre content was mandated, um, if it was legislated that brands were responsible for the whole life cycle of their garment from resource use to disposal and they were required to deal with that, if we had um, mandatory textile waste disposal systems in place, consumers would behave mm. differently. You know, you look at the single-use plastics thing and how yeah. that's really changed yeah. consumer behaviour. Australians are the second highest consumer of textiles in the world per capita um, after the US and we are double the global average. We are highly engaged in a consumer culture um, and consumptive behaviours around textiles and apparel. Um, we cannot expect that change to come from the consumer. We have got to do something transformative to shift some of those behaviours, to encourage brands to take on that responsibility, to, to you know, just make it mandatory for customers to not be able to throw their, you know, textile waste in, the, in their landfill bin, mm. you know. So mm. we, need to, we, we need that support for brands um, from external forces um, to help them. You know, they're carrying the lion's share of consumer ed education. You know, it, it, there's a few key people doing an awful lot around educating consumers. Mm. Um, we actually, you know, need that story to come from... And those really different stories. Audience. Last week or the week before, um, Kevin and I were at a leadership forum where um, amazing New South Wales... Um, university research group were looking at making like ceramic tiles out of mm. textile waste you know some of these really creative and interesting stories also get you thinking of well this maybe is a resource that yeah. can be used for something else and how do we actually and I think that, that that um inventor that you're talking about is Veena Sahajwala yes, yeah and I think what's really interesting about what she's doing is she's doing creating uh, or advocating creating micro factories mm. and this is where the relevance to the free the hub of Fremantle um, comes into play because what she's doing is she's saying well instead of like shipping all our textile waste off to Africa or off to Indonesia for reprocessing what if we set up a little micro factory 
you know, near a good Sammy's or near somewhere where there was a lot of textile waste. Um, and we set up this, you know, the factory where people dropped off their textile waste. It got combined with glass, I think, in the case yeah. of her ceramic tiles. Yeah. Spits out these beautiful um, ceramic tiles. What if we had those dotted around the place? And, and that's where I think, you know, we do have this sort of um, supply chain that is so global and mm. so complex. Um, it's not always possible to do things locally. There's a word called glocalism, yeah. which is a combination of like the global supply chains with working locally where you can. So where it's possible to combine, you know, manufacturers, te textile, um, upcyclers, um, designers, um, even if it's, you know, some of those sampling, prototyping, you know, it, that's what will foster, though, create, creating those not just creative hubs, but manufacturing hubs, having them sitting alongside one another um, is, I think, what, what kind of fosters a sort of a richness yeah, and, uh, and a growth um, that would be awesome. And also, again, that diversity of product and all of those conversations mm. that we're having, I think it's, it is such an interesting model to deep dive into when we start to talk about fashion, we start to talk about retail. We're very, I think it's very easy to glibly just look at the surface mm. and all of the stories we're hearing today, mm. really complex decisions mm. in business that have mm. such an impact on your sustainability mm. as well. We do have a couple of folk in the room, Minnie and Kevin and others. Um, any questions for the panel that you can think of? No? Should we keep moving along? I guess I've got one in all of that complexity. Mm. And Jared, having come through the journey in a all in, shall we say, let's just pack up and change the world kind of moment. Um, what advice looking back over that journey would you give to another business or another young designer that's maybe starting out that you've learnt through that process? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult, uh, that's a difficult, I mean, definitely form relationships and, and, and ask advice. I've, I've always sort of said this as well, you know, you, uh, most, most people, like 98% of people out there will just want to fall over themselves to give you advice. Mm -hmm. And so find the right people and that, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book and I'm always happy and willing to, to give people advice. But honestly, some of the best lessons you learn are the ones where you screw <laughs> up, Royal. Anything that takes money out of your pocket is like, ah, okay. Let's yeah, learn that one. Plug the hole in that bucket. My partner always yeah. says you don't know what you don't know until it oh, hits you in the face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got to but, – but this is the thing as well, and a lot of people are frightened of that um, – well, there's a couple of there's a couple of key points there really. Yeah, people are frightened to fail. Never be frightened to fail because that um, and, and in fact uh, seek out failure because uh, because by seeking out failure you're you're actually doing and you're actually and you're throwing yourself at the problem and you know mm -hmm. um, you have to do that and and in terms of moving forward. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was it was something to the effect of you know ne never let um, uh, uh, never let the moment pass between having an idea and doing one thing towards it to, yeah. to, to, to move forward on it. So if you have the idea, you know, move forward on it. Uh, do something. Plan a ring somebody and plan an appointment or mm. put something in your calendar for, for or, or do that research and write something down you know the the moment you have that inspiration and that idea uh, and the other thing is don't be precious about 
don't be precious about where you're starting because you, you start somewhere. I mean, I, as I said, I started I started thinking, oh, I was going to be jewellery and then doing bags and then, you know. Uh, so you've, you've got to just keep the momentum going. Mm. A- and the other thing would be, yeah, is you have to have skin in the game. Um, uh, I, I do believe that. If you, if you, if you really have that, that vision to want to wanna succeed in whatever it is that you're doing in a business sense, you've got you've to have some skin in the mm. game. And the sooner you get more skin in the game, the more, you know, because when you're suddenly, <laughs> when it's feeding you and your yeah, family yeah. and put your kids through school, then you really, every day you're thinking, okay, what have I got to do? It's stressful, but, you know, how do I take this, how do I keep this going forward? How do I make a dollar today? Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's too many things. I think there's a lot in there, but I think, no, definitely some amazing points, just not only for running the sorts of businesses that you're in, but just more broadly, you know, I think that ability to come up with ideas and take one step towards them. And I think, I can't remember if it was last month's podcast or the month before, um, where someone was saying one of the things they learnt was to do that, but do it quickly. So where you'd set yourself up and jump in really largely, jump in smallly, work it out quickly and get out again. And I think that's really an important part of that process is if we never take action on our ideas, nothing happens. But if we invest everything in an idea, as you said, if you put everything into jewellery, you never would have been making those beautiful yeah. bags that you're making now. So Yeah. Oh, and definitely perfection poisons progress is yes. another, <laughs> another top quote of mine that I love. And, uh, and yeah, if you're going to – once you start doing it uh, uh, and you're really looking at it from, a, say, you know, a, a, uh, an exit strategy from your current situation, you want to do a business, you've got, to, you've got to think about – I mean, you're creative, that's great, but you have to think do about something. making money. You've got to start taking that money in as soon as you can and, and keep it sustainable. Too many people will spend too long on this and too long on that and then they'll throw out here and I'll do this little thing there. No, you've got to keep it going. It's not sustainable. You can't do that creative thing. You can't spread that creative message um, if, if, you, if you can't keep doing it, if you can't eat. That's right. And, and, and you know what always amazes me is how little attention people pay to actually invoicing people. I always <laughs> find that truly extraordinary. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. it's well and good having the best product in the <laughs> shelf and having it walk out the door. But if yeah, you're not actually right. invoicing people, there's a problem <laughs> there. Good. Any advice, Lisa? For, and you obviously you give it every day to your students, but we'd love just to hear some of the, the pearls that I'm sure you have. Uh, yeah, I think, there. you know, just things that we've sort of touched on are around that marriage between authenticity and um, those business skills, remembering mm. to invoice people. Um, and, you know, I was reminded when Jared was talking uh, about the 80-20 principle where um, – and I, I'm allowed to comment on this because I am one of those perfectionists that you're talking about that is the um, – the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, That's and that – That's lessons we've learned along the way. You know, way. and that, you know, that, that feeling of things going out the door at 80%, you know, when, you know, there's a part of you that goes, oh, but, 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 but that 20%, but, you know, that, um, you know, really that – is the lion's share of your income and that if yeah. you spent, you know, 
all of that time achieving the, ne the next 20%, it wouldn't actually make any difference, sustainable difference to, you know, your, your, um, your income. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think, you know, for my students, it's, um, it's building experience, um, ex particularly experience around that business end, um, managing supply chains, troubleshooting, navigating mm. things going wrong. I think, you know, when we do do our product development units, and uh, the hoodies come back from um, our manufacturer in Indonesia and um, the eyelets um, are sitting in a hole that's too big for them and so when the cord comes through they're pulling out and, and they're like, oh, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, this happens. Plan. How do we navigate this? What's the plan? You know, yep, yeah, that, you know, our supplier is two weeks away and what happens to our timeline and troubleshooting all of those things and for students to have a resilience to do mm -hmm. that and to not melt down in the face of the, that adversity. That's the, you know, those are the skills that um, ensure survival um, because, you know, it's ine those things inevitably, in inevitably happen. So, um, so yeah, I think the, it, it's really build, build that resilience through experience. Um, don't be afraid of when things go wrong. And sometimes things are happy accidents, you know, and, um, the stu students sometimes in their design process plan out, you know, you know things that the, exactly that they the way they want it to go, and it doesn't go that way, and it's a disaster. And then we at the last minute troubleshoot something, and we end up with something even better, better you know. And so it's it's you know being not afraid to deviate from the plan to troubleshoot to find a workaround, and you know, and maybe it'll be a compromise and you'll get through it, but maybe it'll be something even better. Absolutely. My great motto of life, no problems, only solutions. I yeah. tell my children on a fairly regular basis. That sounds annoying <laughs> for them, Denisha, is it? <laughs> but I, I think I'm also gonna take Jared's point away too, around we can't afford to just sit and cry in the corner and wait for someone to give us the recognition for the, yeah. the hard work and the effort. You know, all business is hard, particularly mm. in an industry like fashion where the demands are so entrenched in consumer expectations, mm. in fads and changing, I guess, you know, external forces, but along with that really complex supply chain to bring mm. it to production. Um, it, it does require that dedication, that resilience mm. and that eye on the prize. And I genuinely take my hat off to you. I think, you know, we all get something beautiful that we own and love and treasure. And sometimes we just forget just how much hard work actually goes into mm. that. So thank you for both of you for doing what you do for our region. Um, Jared's opening his new store on Market so Street uh, this week. So we'll get to pop in there. We've got Shine the Light coming up. So we'll get to see some beautiful windows done by... Um, mm. The students um, next week we're going to have independent fashion on the street. Um, so keep your eyes out for our social media and for others. Share the fact that you are wearing independent fashion that's been made and crafted by someone um, within our region. I think it's fantastic. Jared, did you have something else you wanted to say and wind up? You've got the mic, or shall I wind it out there? No, wind it up. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> to everyone in the room, thank you so much. To those listening online, what? An amazing conversation. I'm so very grateful to both of you for giving up your time this morning. I've certainly taken away a few gems even in my own world um, that I'll uh, be trying to apply. And yeah, we just can't wait to see next week. And um, for those of you listening, please do get down to Fremantle next weekend. Check out Jared's shop. Check out um, the amazing work of the students at Wally Up Court. Um, and a big thanks to the City for Fremantle for helping us um, bring that to life um, financially because we couldn't do that without them.
Thanks, Thanks everyone. So